Those of you staying in here for the book of Revelation, thank you. The rest of you, why don't you skedaddle to your various classes where you can get into your Bible studies there. While those here in the book of Revelation, let's head over to that book. If you don't have a handout, maybe somebody will be so kind to move around the room and get that. We're headed to Revelation 6. Revelation chapter 6. While you're turning there and getting your brains operating this morning, let's just do this quickly. What might an adult wear that has their name on it? Something somebody wears that has a name, their name on it. Work shirt. What's that? Name tag. What'd you say? Somebody over here. I didn't hear it. Jerseys. Okay. Here's... Jewelry, here's what they said. Sports jersey, jacket, belt, jewelry, name tag. Work uniform was number one. Name something around the house you keep spare batteries for. Flashlights, alarm clock. Okay, here's what they said. Portable music player, toys, radio, remote control, flashlight. Name a complaint people might have about food that they ordered at a restaurant. It's cold. What else did you say? Not done, doesn't taste good. Not right. Anything else? It needs prayer. Ah, it's too rare, so it needs prayer. Okay. Here we go. Wrong food, small helpings, bug hair in the food, forgot the items that they were supposed to bring, slow service, food is burnt or food is cold. Name something people might, I expect total silence on this one. Name something people might complain about when it comes to church. Nobody has anything to offer, so we might as well move on. Sermon isn't long enough. Color of the carpet. The temperature. It's always perfect. The music. The mess. What? That's what you heard somebody say the message, yeah. Here's what they said. Service is too long. Never happens here. Boring message or music. Nothing for the kids. Music, by the way, these are taken from surveys that are true. Okay, music too loud. Hard seats or pews. Temperature of the room. Unfriendly people is usually number one. In our survey here, what's the number one thing? We greet everybody. Number one complaint. What you said, the preaching is too short. That's the number one thing that we hear around this church. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Okay, we're in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, for those of you who haven't been with us when we've been talking about it, let me just back up and give you, a, give you where we are at, those of us who have been in this already the last few weeks. The Apostle John is uh, in, he's under persecution as he's writing this book. Emperor Domitian had, uh, had taken the last of the apostles who was living. He had him persecuted. There is the idea that he was boiled in oil and he was starved for a period of time. And then he's eventually taken to this island of Patmos where he's in exile with the idea that he won't have communication with any of the believers. When Domitian dies, then he's released. But while he is there at that time, he gets some visions from the Lord, and in the visions of the Lord, the Lord is explaining to him what's going to happen in the future. And he has him record it and specifically tells him to record it and write it down, and this becomes what we know as the book of Revelation. It was sent originally to seven different churches, this is chapters 2 and 3, that those churches in Asia Minor, churches that have been established, they, some were doing good, some were doing really poorly. And so he's writing and he has a special note, a postcard, towards each 
each one of those seven churches, but also the larger portion being those prophecies. And so in chapter 1 that we've looked at already is when Jesus appears to John. And when Jesus appears to John, do you remember what John's reaction is when he sees the Lord? Anybody remember? He fell down as a, as a dead man. And so he is identifying himself with several titles. He calls himself the Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty. And so he's seen as being one who is walking amidst the seven stars and the seven, seven candlesticks. The seven stars are and candlesticks, the word stars can be messenger. The messengers to those seven candlesticks, and he describes and defines the seven candlesticks are the seven churches to whom he is writing. The messengers that he calls the stars, we think, are going to be, call, are going to be the seven pastors. And so he's walking amidst that, which is pictorial or, or uh, symbolic of the idea that the Lord is very active, involved in those churches, aware of, knowing, helping, protecting. And so that's the basis of starting the book. And John sees Jesus in his glory and describes him, and therefore he falls down as dead. And as a result, the Lord tells him, I'm going to write down, and he breaks down the things which you have seen, chapter 1. He's seen Jesus Christ in his glory. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches and what's going on in their lives. The things which are to come. And that's going to be the rest of the book after chapter 3, basically chapter 4 to the end of the book, chapter 22, that he's going to be giving prophecy. And so he writes that down, and then at the, after he gives the notes to the churches, which we didn't take the time to look at, in chapter 4 it begins with these words. He says, After this I looked, and a door in heaven was opened, and a voice called, up to, called to him and said, Come Come up hither. And so John is then translated into this heavenly arena where he is immediately there and he is going to be shown the things which shall be hereafter. Chapter 4 begins the prophetic section where he's recording and saying, okay, what is going on? What is the future? And while he is seeing what's going to happen, the first thing that he sees in heaven and he's going to rehearse to him all the things which shall be hereafter. Before he gets that, he looks, and what does he see in heaven? He starts seeing several things. Do you remember what the very first thing he says, I saw in heaven? It, there was a thing, not a person. There was a throne, okay? And he describes this throne, and he says that from emanating from this throne and around it is a rainbow, and emanating are thunders and lightnings, and it's this beautiful scene. Around the throne are 24 elders. We explain why we believe that's the representation of the church. And there's beasts or angels that are there. And on this throne sits the, the ancient one, sits the Lord God. And when he is sitting there, he has a scroll. And the question is, who is worthy to take this scroll from the throne sitter and to begin to open it up? And to begin the process of God's plan becoming full to its completion. And initially when, John, when, the, when the angel says, who, is, who can come forth and take the scroll, what's the response? Nobody. Nobody responds. And John immediately does what? 
He begins to weep because nobody is able to open up the scroll and to continue God's plan to the ultimate redemption of creation and all mankind. And then all of a sudden from the side comes, and he's described as two, with two different animals, the lion and the, the lamb. He comes forth and he takes the scroll. And when he takes the scroll, what does heaven start doing? Okay, all of heaven breaks out in this rejoicing. And they basically say the one phrase that we've talked about. Worthy. Yeah, okay, you've, you're familiar with that phrase. And so heaven breaks out in praise, and he opens up the scroll. As he opens up the scroll, we all of a sudden shift scenes. And the scene now shifts to, with the opening of the scroll, what's going to take place on, pla- on planet Earth. And so now we have the beginning of chapter 6 is the scroll opening. And as the scroll opens, and we described in Old Testament, New, uh, ancient times, New Testament, ancient times, they could roll the scroll something like this, and they would have a series of seals that would be at different spots. So you could break your first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, to get it wide open. And so this is what's happening now in chapter 6. With chapter 6, we have the beginning of what the Bible has called in previous passages the tribulation. Jesus has called it the tribulation. Jeremiah has called it the tribulation. They've called it Jacob's trouble. They've called it the worst time in all of human history. And this time period is described in other passages that we took the time to look at. And if you lead, if you're joining in on this study for this week or for the next weeks as well, we can give you charts of multiple different passages, Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, that would give you a breakdown of some of the other prophecy that had been given, but now is starting to be expanded upon and given lots of details in Revelation chapter 6. And so all of those previous prophecies, they fit perfectly with what we're reading in chapter 6. And so they all work together to describe this tribulation period. Just to summarize, it's the worst seven years of all human history. It's the final seven years right before Jesus comes and set up, sets up his kingdom. Jesus said that in that time of great tribulation, it's going to be like there never was on planet Earth. No time. And, and this includes, what's he including in this? He's comparing it to what, what is probably the most catastrophic thing that's ever happened to Earth up to this point. The flood. And so he says this is worse than that time period. The day is so great, Jeremiah calls it Jacob's trouble, says none is like it. It's a time of two things that happen through this seven-year period. There is great judgment. There is a great harvest of souls. The great judgment and great harvest of souls during this tribulation. And uh, we'll be talking about that this week and next week, starting to talk about the harvest of the souls even, and the judgment in the next few minutes. When he's opening up the scroll, there, he's going to open up, and it's going to have three sets of seven judgments. It starts with the seal judgment, then it moves to the bowl judgment, and then it reads, goes to the trumpet judgment. In fact, you, the seventh seal opens up the seven bowls. The last bowl is also the seven trumpets. This is that time period Antichrist rise to dominate the earth. This is that time period that God selects 144,000 and spares them, marks them, seals them, and we'll talk about them in two weeks, that they go out and they do witnessing along with the two prophets. This is the 
time period that there is spiritual demonic activity like never before. We don't understand the demonic activity. Um, I don't. Maybe you do. But I, I haven't faced it the way that some of our missionaries have. This past week in private conversation, one of our missionaries was sharing that here in America, and he lived here in America for a period of time, that, yeah, you don't see blatant demonism. But in his country where he's serving in, in Africa, the demonism is on the street. He says when he goes walking in the morning, he walks a mile. He can pass at least six or seven different altars right on the street that are to demons. It is that blatant and in your face. The problem that he was struggling with is getting the pastors to stop using some of the demonic activity and voodoo activity as part of the church worship. It is so a part of their culture and their life that they blend it right into the the churches time and time again without even realizing it. And so in this act, this time period, it's going to be more in your face, something that we're not used to. We won't be there, obviously, during this time period. But in America, it's going to be more blatant and not as subtle and not as behind the scene. It'll be even more in your face during that time period. Armageddon takes place in the last weeks of, the, uh, of, the, of this time period. And so it begins in chapter 6 with the opening of the seven seals which are going to be these judgments that are mentioned in chapter 6, all 7, and up to the beginning of chapter 8. And so we're going to start right there. We're going to chapter 6. And uh, by the way, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't talk about it here yet, but we talked about it for a couple weeks. The church is not mentioned anywhere in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all the way, not mentioned until chapter 19. That is because the church isn't in the tribulation. The church is already pictured as being in heaven and casting down their crowns before the seals are opened. And so we gave you multiple different reasons and other passages that indicate a pre-tribulational rapture. That's a discussion that we had that I'm not going to repeat at this point. So we're in chapter 6. We're starting with verse 1. And here we go. Talking about what's happening. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts, that would be those angelic beings, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow, a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. See that you hurt not the oil and wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name on him that sat on him was death and hell followed him. The power was given unto them over one-fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death, and with the beast of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? White robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed as they were killed, and it should be fulfilled. Here we go. Let's start with the first one. 
the first seal. What description do you have? Let's be very simplistic. What are the details given about this first horse? He's white. What else? Okay. Somebody is sitting on him. Okay. The one sitting on him, what else do you have about him? Okay. He has a bow. What else? He has a crown. What else? He's conquering and conquering. So we just, we're being really simplistic here. Okay. The bow, but no mention of arrows. I think that's important. As well, the crown was given him and he's conquering. So what that says to us, if we're going to be very simple in our interpretation, it's telling us, and by the way, some have concluded this is Jesus Christ because he's riding a white horse. Does Jesus ever come riding a white horse? Yeah, he does. Later in the book of Revelation. Yeah, he does. Okay. And so some have included that right away, this has to be Jesus because he's riding a white horse and he has a crown. Okay, there's, there's a difficulty with that, though. Okay, the difficulty is this. Jesus is the one opening the seals. Okay, the difficulty with Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, according to Revelation 19. He doesn't come at the beginning. All this other stuff has to happen in between. The difficulty here is the crown is not a crown, a diadem. It is not a ruling crown. This is like an award given to somebody. The Stephanoi, the same thing that we would be given, the crowns that we're given for what we have accomplished, what we have done. It's a war. Stephanoi is, Stephanos, Stephanoi, it is basically an award that's, that's earned. It's not a ruling type of a crown. And so you look at it and go, wait a minute, okay, could this be somebody else who is imitating, mimicking Jesus Christ? Possibility? Yes? No? I mean, does, let me, let me throw the question. We're jumping far ahead in the book. Does Antichrist do anything else to mimic Jesus Christ? Does he do miracles? Okay, what else happens? He rises from the dead. Okay, so he mimics. Could he mimic Christ right at the very beginning? Sure, sure. Okay, so we're looking and saying the one who is coming without arrows and conquering, there's a manner of force, this is representing a manner of force that is giving, getting influence over other nations. He is getting power. He is getting authority. He is getting um, control of other things. He's done it by pro- doing it by promoting peace. Okay, there's a bow, but he's still winning but from an aspect of peace. The crown could be representative of him getting proclaim, him getting awards, him getting uh, accolades for bringing peace. Do we have any type of awards of recognition for people who bring peace? I already put it up there, okay, by accident. Okay, The Nobel Peace Prize. Can people get it when they don't do a whole lot? Okay, have we ever had presidents get it who have just gotten into office two weeks before and they really had no play in it, but they get the award? Okay, so we have these things happening. Could there be somebody getting recognition at the beginning of the tribulation for bringing peace? And maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe they're going to initiate some peace that has been sought after for a long time. And they get the recognition and people are starting to kowtow to that individual. With that in mind, do you know of any other peace idea that is mentioned in Scripture that Antichrist does at the beginning of the tribulation? 
he does a peace treaty with Israel. Okay? He does a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, which is the beginning of this time period. So we already know from other prophecy, he is going to introduce himself by promoting peace with Israel. By the way, getting peace in the Middle East, is that, a, is that an objective in our world today? Sure, sure. So it would make perfect sense. And so the idea that we have to keep in mind is this is not lasting peace. Okay? Because the next seal says there's warfare. But there's an initial peace, so this can't be Jesus, because if Jesus brings peace, it's forever. Okay, so this is an artificial, a false Messiah that's coming that's bringing peace. Now, other scriptures tell us that this is exactly what Antichrist will do at this time period. We run to scriptures like this. Jeremiah predicts the prophets say, I will give you peace in this place, and the Lord says, the prophets are lying in my name. We read in this passage, Jesus said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall say, I am the Christ, but they're deceiving. So somebody's coming with false, with false teaching. And by the way, what is Messiah predicted to bring upon the earth when he comes? Peace. Okay. It's universal peace. In the last days, they shall say, peace and safety, sudden destruction will come. We read elsewhere that Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all lying wonders. He's going to present himself as one thing, but be something totally different. So this fits. If this is a picture, a portrait, seems to me, of Antichrist who is coming. And then we have the next seal. What's the next seal? Give me the descriptions. The color of the horse. Okay. What else do you have with it? What's happened? He takes the piece away. Okay? What else happens? There's killing, great killing. And what's given to this person? A great sword. Okay, let's, let's dissect. We got the red horse. Power is taken that they should kill one another. Given unto him a great sword. So we look at it and say, okay, what's it mean? What's it representing? Red is obviously in Scripture. It just keeps coming up time and time again. You've got blood, you've got fire, you've got something that isn't good here. Peace is taken, so there's going to be a promotion of warfare. There's going to be activity of warfare. There's a great amount of killing and with warfare because of the sword that's given. The sword that's given, by the way, is the shorter sword. The shorter sword that was used and by use, <laughs> using, uh, the shorter sword that was used by the Romans, the short sword was usually used in what type of combat? Okay, hand-to-hand, very close combat. So there's going to be a lot of, a lot of not long-range bombings. The indication is there's going to be actual military, actually armies are going to be actively involved in this type of situation. And with the, with the adjective that just says great, it means there's going to be a lot of it that's going to take place. So you've got the beginning of peace, but shortly thereafter, all of a sudden, there's no peace. Okay, Daniel 8 describes Antichrist as this way, that he is a warmonger. His power shall be mighty. He shall destroy wonderfully, that is, in a great fashion, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. In Revelation 13, later on, it describes him by giving an accolade that says, who shall be able to make war with him? In other words, yeah, He's, he's invincible. He's powerful. He's got a lot going, and he's very active. So it fits perfectly what Jesus said. In Matthew 24, when Jesus was describing the last days, you shall hear wars 
rumors of wars, nation shall rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And this is in the first part. We've already discussed this. The first part, when Jesus is describing in Matthew 24, the very first part of the tribulation in the first three and a half years. Man, this stuff fits right together. The Bible just complements all these passages. They, are, they be read together. They are just uh, up to date with each other. The third seal. The third seal. What color horse? I got black. Uh, what is it? Okay. You got this black horse. What else? Okay, he's got the balances, a pair of balances, scales. What else? Okay, he's going he's gonna to be talking about in the text, okay, as you look at it, the black horse, balances, and they're going to talk about measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of wheat for a barley. Okay, this is really interesting. If you go back into the culture and understand what they say in this culture, okay, uh, there's, uh, there's clearly, along with warfare, there are food shortages that are more intense than in modern day right now. And by the way, is there modern day, is there modern day famines in lands? Okay, it's happening. I don't know if you caught it on Wednesday night when Tim was sharing that the Taliban has contacted him last week. Did you catch that part? The Taliban contacted him and wants to meet with him. The reason they want to meet with him in Tajikistan is because the, um, the idea is there's so much famine starting to hit that region with all the refugees coming out that they can't keep up with these people, but they know that he has contact with humanitarian aid. So the question in his mind is, should we work with the Taliban to use this as an open door to get in to share the gospel? Because if they allow, he can go in. Okay, so that's the question. Or he's wondering... Is the Taliban the Taliban? Is this a trick to get him exposed and to take him out? So you got to pray. you got to pray. That's what he alluded to on Wednesday about praying. you got to pray for real wisdom. He's not sure how to interpret this at this point. It's a totally new and novel. Remember he has said they've been praying for the last year and a half, two years, for an, something to open up. He doesn't know if this is it or if this is a ploy. So pray for that. So what happens in that regard is with the warfare and the food shortages, understand in the Old Testament, the way that they would give out food was through balances. It was very common in the marketplace to weigh out to if you were bartering or if you were uh, paying with some coinage. And so instead of having a scanner, they would have the scales that they would use in the marketplace. And so it seems to be that with this, they're rationing out. That's a strong possibility. The measure of wheat indicates one meal. A measure of wheat is one meal. Okay, it's one Big Mac. That's what you're getting for a measure of wheat. The penny equals a day's wage. So you're getting one sandwich for all day's wage. What's the problem with that? Okay, just one sandwich. You're eating one sandwich all day. That's what you get. How would that be a problem for you in your household? Okay, you want more food. Your family wants more food. Okay, not everybody's working, okay, because you've got warfare and all those things going on. So you've got a measure of wheat, one meal. The penny is one day's wage. Take it a step further. The barley was one of considered in low nutritional value. You know who usually ate the barley? 
the very poor, or it was going to be given to the livestock. So the idea is you're going after dog food. You're going after animal food because you can't afford anything. Well, maybe, maybe dog food's that expensive. I don't know. But it's, you're getting low nutrition for a day's wage, even for the weakest of food, which means even if you get the sandwich and it's barley, it's not going to keep up with your nutritional needs. So this is just desperate time. Then he makes a statement, don't damage the oil or the wine. What do you think he means? What do you think he means? Don't damage the oil or the wine. What's that? Somebody's saying something. I don't know who it is. Conserve it? Okay. That's a possibility. Was oil and wine important commodities back in Bible days? Yeah, what would you do with the oil? Well, with food related. Okay, was, all your cooking is with that type of, was with, with the oil. Wine? Okay, uh, both would, could be medicinal. That's true. Okay, what was, the, what was the issue for wine? Why was it so common? The water was terrible. Excellent. Okay, so you're talking about in this area, oil and wine, I, I, I fully don't understand what he's saying. Okay, I don't know. But just putting it together, oil and wine are necessities for even preparing food. Okay, and so what he, could he be saying is these other necessities in life, they're being affected is he saying in this life, you need to protect what little you have? I, I don't fully comprehend. You know, don't damage. Be very cautious. Um, because wine, what is typical, how would typically people respond today with wine? It's kind of plentiful. Okay, we can be careful. How would we respond with water compared to the rest of the world? Do, do we waste a lot of water compared to the other countries in the world? Yes, we do. Okay. Do we, do we have a lot of leftovers that we throw out? Okay, compared to the rest of the world. Yes, no? Okay, okay. So is he saying, you be very careful with your leftovers even. You be very careful with everything because it is so... Okay. And so the idea clearly is, this is really desperate times. This is worse than, than this is comparable to Holocaust... Nutrition. It's a horrible time for people of that time period. Great famine, which, by the way, with great famine, it's going to come fear. Yes? As a family, what would be... Put yourself in living that time. What would be your greatest fear? Your, your kids? Survival? Where am I going to get the next day? Okay, and so it, it's just horrible. And this agrees with what Jesus said in Matthew 24. That he said in that first part of the tribulation period, there shall be wars and rumors of war. There shall be famines. So it's all going right together. It, it just fits again. Number four, the fourth horse. What color? Pale. Okay. Anybody have something, a footnote for pale? Ashen, green. Okay, good. Okay, the pale horse, what else do you have? What's the rider? Death. Okay, the rider is death. What, what happens? Okay, now you got death and hell followed him. Right? Am I saying it right? Okay, and hell followed him. And as a result of these two, how many people die? Okay, fourth part of the earth are killed. Now notice the wording. 
They're killed with sword, which imply, which is referring back to what? Okay, hunger, the famine, okay, death, and now we throw into what other thing is attacking people? Okay, the animals or the beasts. And so we say, okay, what does it mean? Let's do the, let's take it, break it down. It's an ashen color, you know, color of corpse, not pretty. Okay, that all of a sudden this is going that chloros is the word literally. It's greenish, yellowish, just yeah. The uh, the in the Bible days they did have a concept of what we call the Grim Reaper. They they was in a lot of their mythological things. So when they talked about death, even in Jewish literature, they talked about the scepter of death coming. And so that idea is saying it's the Grim Reaper being pictured here. Okay, is is uh, very very typical. The hell could be literally the grave, not the place of hell, but the place of where the bodies are put, or it could be the the damnation of souls. But it can mean either or both. So you have the grim reaper coming, and a lot of people dying, massive number of deaths. Okay, and uh, again, these two go hand in hand. One quarter of the people living at that time. Somebody asked last time we mentioned this. Does this include believers? We're gone already. So take all the believers out of the earth and whatever the population is within that first few months, first couple years, first three and a half years, one quarter of all the people will die. The, the business that is booming, I don't mean to be you know, morbid, but the business that is booming, right? Your business is prospering, okay? The undertaker's business, it is just... Have we ever had times in the world, in the United States, where they couldn't keep up with the burials? For caskets, it happened in 2018 with the Spanish flu that hit the United States. People were digging up other people's caskets to get caskets of their own. It was in 1918. What did I say? 2018. Yeah. Okay. 1918. Thank you. Um, it wasn't COVID. No. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, so you got the wars that are taking place. You got the famines that are taking place. You got the pestilences. By the way, the word pestilence is the word is another word for death, which in, in the original language. Um, and and, and my, my observation is that in the Civil War, more people died by disease and infection than they did on the battlefield. So we have the same type of thing happening. We already mentioned that in 1918. There we have even the right dates. Okay, more people died of the influenza that were killed in battle of World War I. And so this is uh, this has happened. The beast of the earth. Um, what could be the possibilities here, with the beast of the earth killing people? Okay, they're hungry. Okay. Anything else? I mean, that's a possibility. Think of have beast have beast animals ever created real problems for mankind, like plagues. What did you say? The rats in the bubonic plague. Okay. Did they spread that, that disease throughout Europe? Yeah. So it could, be, it could be that type of thing that could be happening that's all combined together. That is just absolutely chaotic. We think the world is nuts. Nuts. I'll say it not Pennsylvania Dutch. We think the world is nuts now. Living in this time period. And that's why when people say to me, or you, they say, well, I'll wait until after the rapture. Then I'll get saved. Okay. Well, I mean, if, if, what's holding people back from getting saved now? 
It could be family. It could be pressure. Will it intensify in the tribulation? Yeah, because if you, you're in a famine and if you want to eat, you have to go along with Antichrist. So all those reasons not to get saved now are going to be compounded. It's amazing. And Jesus said this would happen. You shall hear of wars, rumors of wars. And he says, nation shall rise against, and there will be pestilences. And then this is all the beginning of sorrows. That means it's in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It's the beginning. It still doesn't, we still haven't seen the abomination of desolation. Then we go to chapter, or to seal number five. Seal number five, what do you have pictured here? Verse nine. You have an altar. Okay, what else? Souls of them that are under the altar. Who are the souls? Them that were slain for what? Okay, now, now here's what he's pointing out. A lot of people have died following Antichrist or involved in his things. A lot of people will also die for following who? For Jesus Christ, for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And so you got all these people that are described, souls of them under the altar, slain for the word and their testimony. They're martyred, they're martyred saints killed during this first part of the tribulation. And so what do you get an impression of? Is there a few? Is there many? There's many. There's a lot of people that are going to turn to Christ during this time period. How is that possible? How is it possible that they're going to turn to Christ? They might remember hearing the gospel. What else? Okay, you got a hundred. He's going to explain it. That's how we get to chapter 7. He's going to explain how they get saved. The 144,000. What else might be impacting? What could you do that might impact some people? Later on. Okay, if you planted seed, if you record something, if you write something, that may have an impact on some relative that all of a sudden, boom, okay, they get saved, they get born again. And so that tells us many people are going to get saved in the tribulation period. This isn't us because we're in heaven before it all starts. So this is other people. But there also tells you great opposition to believers. Not only is there warfare and all this, there's going to be great opposition against believers right from the get-go of the tribulation. That they're going to be accused, they're going to be uh, persecuted. This agrees with what Jesus said in Matthew 24. When he talks about the beginning of that time. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted. They shall kill you. You shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Revelation 13, Antichrist will make war with the saints and he will overcome them. That is, he's going to be winning the battle against the believers. And so what happens here is, the martyred saints say, Lord, how long? How long until you avenge our blood? There's, oh, there's so much here that we could just dissect. But it, it's just tremendous truth. So what it teaches us, which is very important, here's your theology that it rolls out of it. People who die are still alive. Okay? There is a whole doctrine being promoted through our community when they have these prophecy conferences by different groups that say when you die, you go to sleep. It's called soul sleep. You don't know what's going on. You just stay there until the return of Jesus Christ. And, and if he chooses you, you get to be one of those that's woken up and taken into heaven. I got news for you. Revelation 5 combats that right away. 
they're already in heaven under the altar. They're wide awake. Not only are they wide awake, they are, they are, they're remembering their life. They haven't forgotten their experiences. Can you think of any other, any other instances where Jesus told an account of somebody dying who remembers his past life? The rich man and Lazarus. What does the rich man remember? And he remembers his family. He's got, did he say five brothers? Is that right? Okay. He knows. He remembers. He has a recollection of how he lived and what was there. So does Abraham. Anyway, they remember their past life. And they realize vengeance is not ours. So those people who run around and say, well, my relatives in heaven are taking care of me. Okay, that's not true. They can't do that. They're with me. They're protecting me. They can't do that. When we go to heaven, we don't become God. Okay? God, these people who want to take vengeance, that's what their spirit wants to do. And God says, or what's obvious, they can't. They can't. They're not in control. But the idea that seems to be in this text is they want the evil stopped. Because they make this comment, you are a holy and true God. How can a holy and true God allow evil to continue? Does that sound like a question we ask in our everyday life? Well, they're in heaven and they're asking, you know, when are you going to stop this? And when are you going to put an end to it all? Which, by the way, you and I can fully understand. We wish God would put an end to it right now. We watch what's happening in the Ukraine. Do we wish it would stop right now? Yeah, okay. And so we understand their thought pattern. And the response is, rest yet for a little season until fellow servants and brethren should be killed. What does that tell you? There's more coming. There's more death coming in the tribulation. What, it, what else? Okay. What would you say, Pooch? It's all in God's time. This, this whole thing is in God's hand, God's timing. Okay? They're given white robes or stola, which are gifts from God, which, by the way, show up later on in other texts. They're told to rest. The idea of rest isn't just go to sleep, which some, some keep on saying. It's soul sleep. It's not true. The word God rested. What does that mean with creation? Did God go to sleep after he created no, it's the idea you enjoy your... You just sit back and enjoy. You just sit back and enjoy. Some of you know what I mean when I give this silly illustration. There are times now when the house gets busy and all the kids come and all the grandkids that it's fun just to sit back and watch what's going on and enjoy a little bit of all the activity. Does that make sense? Okay, and so that's the idea. Sit back and enjoy, and don't be overcome with what's going on on earth. Just enjoy your present circumstance. Is there a theme in Scripture of being content in our present circumstances? It even continues in heaven, okay? So what happens is God says that it's for a little season. He tells him there's still a little bit more time. He's in control of the time, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we know that from the rest of the book of Revelation, Okay, that that's the case. And uh, then there's going to come a time when he says time shall be no more, and then we shift total gears later on. Okay, let's just make some quick lessons here just from what we've studied so far about the souls under the altar. People get saved during the tribulation period early on. Even right all the chaos, the warfare, people will be getting saved. Okay, we're not there to reap the harvest, but we can be planting seed 
Okay? Many will die in the tribulation. We know that. Many of the are lost, but also believers will die in the tribulation. Okay? So don't get confused with those groups that say, if you're part of the saints of God, the witnesses, if you live in this time period, you're sealed. The only ones who are sealed are the, and protected from death are 144,000. <clears> the rest are not are not sealed. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Opposition to believers will be greater than even things we know now in the last days. When saints die, their souls live on. When saints die, they remain awake and active in heaven. We don't zone out. We don't do what sometimes we feel like doing at church when we're under the Word of God. We just kind of zone out and we're just very passive and resting That's not going to be happening in heaven in that regard. In the afterlife, we remember our lives and our life experiences. So we have theology that comes out of it. But can I, this to me is more exciting, is this aspect, okay? God is gracious and merciful. This text highlights God is gracious and merciful. How do we know that? Even in a time period that is designated judgment day, judgment time, judgment upon the world, God is working to save souls. Even in the most horrible time period, he is working to save souls. He wants people to be saved. He wants them to be born again. Even in a day when wickedness is running rampant, he is able to save souls. You know, when people come along and they say, oh, I work in a factory that's the most wicked place in the world, and it could be, but I work in the most wicked place on the earth, There's no way people can get saved. What's the theological response to that? God can can still save souls. Even in the darkest of days, God can save souls. God can be working. We just have to to cooperate with him to the best of our abilities to see that happen. There is so much more. I wanted to get into the next section, but hey, we're already, let's just stop. Let's do something that I never do. Let's stop early.